If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them up to the book of Acts. We'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. I'll be reading from the King James Version. For for Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you, of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you, first, God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. In his sermon... Peter was explaining how we have received the truth from faithful men. Not only have we received the truth from faithful men, we are now obligated to continue to allow that same truth to go to other people so that those who would follow in the footsteps of Jesus, that they may have an opportunity to do that. Many faithful men and women have gone on before us. They've gone into the fields and they've done the work and they have labored diligently in the vineyard of the Lord. And we now have entered into their labor also. But we need to ask ourselves a question. How am I doing in my labor? Am I laboring in the ways that God wants me to labor? Am I putting forth that same effort that those great prophets of old who came before me... Am I doing those things in the ways in which they have done those things? You know, to labor successfully, we must see the same thing that God sees. We must see the same thing that the Old Testament prophets saw, the same things that the New Testament prophets saw, those exact same things that the early church saw as they went about working in the vineyard of God. But the thing we need to understand, before we can see something, we must first be looking for it. Have you ever traveled down the highway and someone say, did you see such and such a thing? Well, no. Most of the time I have to say, no, I didn't see that, but I wasn't looking for it, right? I may notice something as I'm driving and I may ask one of the girls, did you see that? Uh, For example, we saw a huge hawk the other day on the side of the road. And it caught my attention and I said, did you see it? And I think Cameron said she saw it, someone else didn't see it, but they weren't looking for it, right? Before we can see something, we have to be looking for it. There's something very interesting in the world of race car driving. As a race car driver, one of the most important things that they learn as a new driver is to focus on where they want to go. Now we think that that's should be elementary. 
But everything doesn't always go just exactly the way you want it to go, right? I used to be a, a, a racing fan years ago, and I would watch those races, and more often than not, every single race had some kind of a wreck as the race unfolded. As the race car driver goes into a spin or whatever the case may be, it is almost natural for them to want to look at the thing they're trying to avoid. They go into a spin and they see the wall coming and they want to focus on the wall or they want to focus on a car that has crashed and they're coming around the curve and and they want to focus on that thing they want to avoid, but they can't do that. They are trained to focus on the path in which they want to go. Now, a lot of them focus on the wall. And when your focus is on the wall, that's normally where you end up. So they train them to find the clear path. Go in that direction. Now, that's not so different in the Christian work of the church, is it? That's not so different at all. Jesus looked for those same things that the Father saw. He looked for that purpose for which He came to earth. And of course, He came to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 We want to see the same thing Jesus saw. We want to see the same things the Old Testament prophets saw. The same thing the New Testament prophets saw. We want to see those things that God has provided for us to see, but we've got to be looking for them if we're going to see the same things. Now, if we want to see the church grow, what do we have to look to? We have to look to church growth. That's what we need to do. But for that to happen, for us to be able to see the same things that God saw, we have to start with, Execution. We have to see the execution of something in the same way that God sees it. Where do we begin? Well, we begin by being present, right? We have to be present. That's very fundamental, isn't it? We have to be present in our attendance. We have to be present within the work. We have to be where we need to be. Our fingerprints must be on the church in every aspect. When we look back over the first century and, and we see some of the difficulties in which they were trying to grow the church, they had a lot of hindrances, didn't they? Much like we today, they would have had sickness in family. They would have had uh, unannounced guests come and, and drop by to visit. They may have even had to travel great distances in which to congregate with the saints. There were all sorts of hindrances that they had, many of which are common in our time as well. But there's something else. They had other hindrances. They had hindrances of understanding that Christianity was an outlawed religion. Until the third century, if someone was determined or discovered or spoke about being a Christian, they were in danger of jail and perhaps even losing their lives. We have to understand that. They had great hindrances. Looking at their hindrances and understanding mine, my hindrances are not so terrible after all, are they? But they were faced with those things. They were 
They were encouraged to try to leave the church by those who were living or trying to go back to living under the old law. They had to meet in secret. They couldn't tell, or they had to be very careful about who they spoke about their Christianity with. It's a lot different than what we're able to do today. Today, we can openly discuss our beliefs, our Christianity, but they couldn't do that. They had to be very careful in who they talked about Jesus to. So their their hindrances were far greater than ours. And as we look over the history of the church, well, there's no, no surprise that they at times had a problem with attendance. Sometimes they were not present. And that's why the writer of Hebrews addressed that. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, explaining how we're to provoke one another unto love into good works. And he goes on into verse 25 and he explains how we do that by not forsaking the assembling of the saints together, as is the habit of some. And so he encouraged them not to do that. The inspired writer did not permit the excuses or the hindrances of the day to interfere with their execution of the work of the church. They're they're looking at and seeing the things just like God saw them because they had to be present. I think it would be fair to think that Attendance in our day wouldn't be a problem when we look back and and we understand what the first century church went through. Today, Christianity is accepted in almost every nation around the world. Almost every nation around the world, it is accepted. Or at least it is allowed to be there by those in charge. You know, in our country, especially in our, our time, we're free to do what we want to do, right? And in fact, when you look around and you see the congregations of our country, even the smallest of congregations, they all have a building in which they can meet. Most of them have padded pews on which they can sit. And a vast majority have air conditioning and heat so they can worship in comfort. Not so in the first century. Obviously, they didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have heat other than a fire. They didn't have nice buildings in which to congregate. They certainly didn't have padded pews on which to sit. And so we need to think about those things. We, we need to think of our brethren. We're, we're to provoke one another. There, there are few things more discouraging than seeing Members who are supposed to be faithful, not in regular attendance. And few things can cause such great damage to the work of the church. Now, how do we handle that? Well, you know, there's a process through which we handle issues in the church. The Lord commanded us and He taught us that we're not to continually go out into the world and, and... after one time after another, just continually keep on begging people to listen to the gospel. Because after a while, they become irritated, and it seems to almost even push them away more. Notice what he said in Matthew 7, verse 6. He said, not, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. 
<clears throat> those of us who who grew up with farm animals and and we understood when you went out to slop the hog that they knew you were coming. They were trained to understand about a certain time every day you'd go out and slop the hog. And they would come running. And if you're out there with them and you have the food, they will sometimes even nearly knock you over getting to it. And so what's he talking about here? He says, don't cast your pearls before the swine. The pearl, throughout the New Testament and in the parables that Christ taught, a pearl can represent the church, the the gospel, right? When we find something so valuable as a pearl or the gospel, we have to take care of it. Well, if you go out to slop the hogs and and you have uh, a slop bucket and then you have a handful of pearls, the hog doesn't differentiate between that. He doesn't identify something as valuable. He'll knock you over, try to get to the food, and in the process of that, he'll trample those pearls under his feet. He doesn't respect the value. So when we go out into the world, we can't just continually, every time we see an individual... Just keep on and on and on. If they're not interested, they're not interested. And they're trampling the preciousness of the gospel under their feet. That doesn't mean we talk to someone one time and give up, but we have to use reason. We have to understand when it's time to move on. Well, I think that same statement can apply to members of the church. I don't think we should ever have to beg someone who is a Christian to be faithful in attendance. We shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to always be be nursing someone or holding their hand. They need to be faithful in their attendance because they understand it's important. Now that doesn't mean that those who are newly baptized into Christ and they're learning, they may not understand. We need to encourage and we need to constantly be helping in some way. But my goodness, when someone is a 20-year Christian, should we have to continually beg that individual to be faithful in attendance. I don't think so. We need to be careful also of the example we set. We're trying to execute something that will grow the church. We're trying to see the same things that God sees. And when we are not present, we give a a bad example. I want you to notice what Christ said in Matthew 18, beginning with verse 6. He said, But whoso whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were uh, hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. When we give the example of our presence not being important, that's wrong. And we encourage someone in that also. So we have to be careful. We need to be present during times of worship. We need to be present during special events that the church holds. And I'm not talking about secular events or or things that we do. We need to come together in fellowship and we ought to support that. But I'm talking about worship assemblies, study times, things like that that the church has set aside. If we're not doing that, we're not seeing what God saw. We're not seeing what those first people saw. But here's something else when we look at executing. We need to understand that we need to be present 
in the work. But the work is personal. It better be, hadn't it? And if we're not seeing it as personal, we're not seeing what God saw. Did God, who did God send to earth? He sent one man, the God-man, a very personal individual. And he had very personal relationships with those who he trained and who he taught. And they had very personal relationships with those people with whom they taught. And in return, those people, having obeyed the gospel, had a very personal relationship with our God. I think sometimes we allow the denominational world to hijack that sentiment from us. We look at that statement of personal relationship with Jesus and <clears throat> excuse me, and we cringe because we understand the denominational aspect of that. Well, uh, you just have to believe in Jesus and, and have, a, have a personal feeling toward Him. Well, that's not what the personal relationship is. The personal relationship is born through obedience to God. And then we continue that personal relationship in our personal work ethic, in our personal evangelistic efforts. And we have to understand that it is people, individuals, who make up the collective body of the church, and each one must personally be doing their part, and then collectively we move ahead. Christianity is personal, and we need to see that in our personal evangelism. What's the ultimate aim of the church? Paul said, Ephesians 3.21, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's the whole point, isn't it? To bring glory and honor to God. Jesus told us how to accomplish that goal. He was very straightforward and very simple in His teaching. He said, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. When we fail at personal work, we fail to produce fruit. And we're not bringing glory and honor to God when that happens. We have to take this as a personal endeavor as we find our way to heaven. Evangelism for the church must be a top priority. It must be something that we have to be all in on, right? It has been estimated that before the end of the first century, there were 150,000 Christians in a world that housed 200 million people. By 1963, that estimate was 2,125,000 people in a world that was that had 3 billion people. Now today, 2018, we have a world that has more than 7 billion people and the number of Christians has not changed. Now that's not all because of a lack of evangelism, but a lot of it is. There's a smaller percentage today than during the first century when persecution was at its height. There's a problem with that, isn't there? I think we need to restore the, the spirit of evangelism. How do we do it? Well, let's execute the plan. Let's, let's turn it into something personal. Let's be present when that work is taking place. The, the Lord taught 
that we needed to have zeal. And Luke recorded that zeal for us. Notice Acts 8, 3 through 4. As Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore they were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. There are two things that are required if we're going to be successful in spreading the gospel of Christ. We first of all have to have a message. We have to have the power of God. And we've been given that. We've been given the power of God unto salvation. But then we have to wield it through preaching and through teaching. Mark 16, 15 and 16. It's one thing to have the knowledge or to have the power But if we do not wield the power or execute the power or the knowledge, we're not going to be successful. We have to be able to see the execution of the church's work in the same way God sees it. We need to see it in the same way those first century Christians saw it. We're not going to be successful. Now, what does that mean, seeing the execution the same? Well, every... Every church doesn't have to participate in the same works. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is understanding the necessity of the work in whatever avenue we go in doing it. We need to be able to see the same things. We need to see it in execution. But then we need to see it in the expansion of the church. We need to understand how the body is to be expanded. We need to understand the proper way in doing that. As a brother told me one time in talking about the denominational world, he says, we can't out-entertain them. And boy, that's the truth, isn't it? We're not going to be able to out-entertain the denominational world, but we can surely outwork them. We have that ability. And that's what God wants. But first, I have to have spiritual health. I have to be able to work, right? We see that in the physical world. When we're not able to work in our physical jobs, we can't go fulfill those requirements. If we become injured or we're sick or something like that, we can't work physically in our secular jobs. Well, the same thing is true with church work. If I'm sick spiritually, I can't work. I can't help expand the church. And until I am truly converted to God, I'm no help to Him. Now we have to understand, spiritual health goes beyond initial salvation. Someone may understand what they need to do to be a Christian. That's pretty elementary, isn't it? They understand that there has to be faith in in Jesus Christ, faith that, that God sent this man who was from heaven, who is God, was God, and continues to be God. We have to believe on Him, Hebrews 11, 6. We can understand that repentance is necessary, turning away from a life that that doesn't incorporate God into it, a life that does not live by God's standards, and say, I'm going to live for God. Acts 2.38 We can understand that confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10, 9 and 10, confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the confession, Acts 8.37. And then being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin, for the very purpose of having my sins washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen, and then coming up out of that water to walk in a new life, 
Romans 6, 3 and 4. We understand that. So a person can understand that, be converted to God, but then not be converted to God in his continual learning and understanding of what God wants. And until that happens, we cannot help God. We need to understand what he wants us to do. James said, A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. A person who does not have spiritual health, who does not understand that that's just the beginning of initial obedience. That's, that's the easy part. He's not going to be helpful. We can't depend on that individual. That's an unstable person. Solomon also said, Proverbs 25:19, Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Now, Brother Foster would understand about having trouble with a foot. He's just had surgery on his foot. That's not, that's not conducive to being able to get around very well, is it? So who wants, a, who wants a foot out of joint when they need to walk? And especially during this time, that was their mode of transportation, right? They had to walk where they went. And, and an unfaithful man is worse than a foot out of joint. You can't count on that individual. The first century church enjoyed growth because they were spiritually healthy. And that's what we need today. Each member was truly converted and understood what it meant to be a Christian. That's a continual growing process. Upon hearing Peter's preaching, those on the day of Pentecost, they were excited to know what God wanted them to do verse 37 what shall we do they were willing to do what was necessary in other words they counted the cost they understood they looked around and and they they knew what the situation was at that time but still they wanted to do what God wanted them to do true conversion demands dedication they understood that dedicated Members, understand the Lord's command. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Mark 8, 34. That's not just a good suggestion, is it? That's a commandment. We put to death all those things that's keeping us from being faithful to God. We get rid of those. That doesn't mean that that we're going to immediately have no issues in life after obeying the gospel. We spend a a majority of our lives up to that point, our entire lives, doing what we want to do. And now we have to go through that transition of changing and doing what God wants us to do. And we'll mess up along the way some. But we are dedicated to continuing in doing what God has asked us to do. We crucify ourselves. We mentioned Romans 6, 3, and 4. And that's what Paul was talking about. We put the old man of sin to death. We come up out of the water after having obeyed the gospel. And now we're walking in a new life. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. 2 Timothy 2.11 Let's put that old person to death. Let's let's understand that, that we need to execute the plan and then we need to expand the church. We need to have spiritual health if we're going to be able to do that. 
And how do we do that? How do we, how do we gain our spiritual health? Well, in many ways, we do it by helping, right? We help do the things that is necessary. That's foreign to our culture, isn't it? How many people want to help with something unless they get some kind of self-gratification out of it or something that benefits them personally? Very few people in the world want to do that. It's kind of what's in it for me syndrome, isn't it? Okay, yeah, I'll do that, but what do I get out of it? Well, you may get nothing out of it other than the blessing of doing something for someone. I don't know of a, of a greater joy in my life, aside from my family, when I help someone come to the knowledge of the gospel and they become Christians. We have to have an attitude of a servant. And what do servants do? They help. Servants help. Christ helped the world and Paul demanded this. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. It goes on to say, even to the point of death, he gave himself because he was a servant. Isaiah talked about the suffering servant. Through His suffering, He served us. We need to be able to help. I think there are a lot of Christians in the world who view Christianity as more of a burden than a blessing. It's not a burden. It's a blessing untold. And when we come to understand that, the church will be blessed. When we have the mind to help, the church will grow. I think it really is an attitude of thankfulness that we need to foster, right? Christ gave His life. He affords me the opportunity to be able to teach others about Him so they can also become members of the church. To see the same thing within a congregation that God saw, that the first century church saw, that Jesus saw, we have to execute. We have to have expansion. But we also require extermination. Now, someone says, that sounds a little odd. Well, it depends on what we're exterminating, right? What about a lack of perseverance? Let's exterminate a lack of perseverance. James said this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, And that goes on to to be completed. And it allows our work to be complete. It allows us to be wanting in no area. Let's exterminate a lack of perseverance. When we handle the temptation correctly, our perseverance grows, our patience grows, our dedication grows. We become thankful and we're we become proud in, in a proper sense of our ability as growing as mature Christians. That's what God wants. There's nothing wrong with being proud if it's in the proper sense. God is proud when we live faithfully. We ought to be proud of each other when we do those things that are necessary. We ought to be proud of ourselves when we have success in overcoming temptation. Paul talked about those temptations of the world, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There are no temptations out there that Rick Owens has that no one else has ever seen before. 
All temptation is common to the world. It, it depends on how I handle it though, isn't it? I can use it for good or I can allow it to, to drag me in and corrupt me. The Lord persevered as He carried out heaven's mission. I ought to persevere. If I'm going to see the church in the same way that God sees it, that Jesus sees it, I have to persevere. We need to exterminate a lack of perseverance. When Christ came, He did what He did for others, not for personal gain. He didn't want to go to the cross. That's what He said in Luke twenty-two forty-two. He asked the Father if it was within His will, remove that cup from Him. He didn't want to go suffer in that way, but He persevered through that. His actions ought to encourage us to persevere through our obstacles because the obstacles in which we face Nothing what Christ faced. To see the same thing, we must exterminate a lack of perseverance. But we must also exterminate a lack of proper priorities. We need to put our priorities in order. I think the world, that's one of the worst things facing us today. A lack of priority. I read in the news uh, just the other day... uh, This journalist was talking about Hollywood and how Hollywood's trying to speak for the masses. And you have all these people that that live in debauchery and sinfulness and and, uh, the reporter named all of these stars who who came out and said monogamy is useless. I'm not fooling with that. We weren't ever meant to be monogamous, one man and one wife. Of course, the man and the wife is, is foreign now to Hollywood. And they're trying to speak for us? Really? That's foreign to us, isn't it? Makes us sick when we hear those things. We don't agree with that because our priorities are different from their priorities. They don't even believe in God, most of them. And if they do, they fall into that camp that says, well, God wants me to be happy and I'm on my twelfth husband or wife and He's okay with that. He's not okay with that. Our priorities need to be in order. Many have not counted the cost that we mentioned. Jesus spoke to our priorities when, when He talked about where we lay up our treasures. Matthew six nineteen. He says, don't lay them up on earth. Rust and corruptions and moths will eat them. He says, lay up your treasures in heaven. There's not going to be any moths or rust or corruption or or anything that's going to damage those treasures. But it's a simple case of priorities, right? What do I put first in my life? If my priorities are founded in the world, I don't have the love of God in my life. Meaning I don't love God. Not that He doesn't love me. But He'll still punish if I don't have my priorities right. John warned us against loving the world. He said, love not the world, neither the things in the world. He talked about the three avenues of sinful things that, in which we can involve ourselves. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That sums it up. That encapsulates the process and the, the, the types of temptations. And now there are a myriad forms of those. But the thing is, this world's going to come to an end. It's going to stop one day. 
I was talking to a brother the other day and we were talking a little bit about global warming and I said, I believe in it. It's going to happen all at once. And this world's going to come to an end. And all these things that we're loving, that we put up high on the priority list, are going to be gone. They're not going to help us. And when my priority for following God is way down here and everything else is way up here, that's not going to help me in the end. I have to get my priorities straight. That's a necessity, right? I have to do it. The rich fool came to that understanding too late. He said, oh, look at all these great things I've done. I'm going to tear my barns down and I'm going to build more barns. And Christ said, you fool, this very night I'm going to require your soul. Where were his priorities? Is in a barn full of grain. What's going to happen to that barn and that grain? Well, it's gone even right now. What he had established is gone. It's not even in existence. But what about the barns we build? The things in our barns? If the world stands, they'll disappear too. But if the world doesn't stand and the Lord comes back, it's going to go away anyway. I can't base my priority in this world. We don't ignore this world. That's not what the Lord taught. He never intended that. We have responsibility. We better be working. We better be taking care of our families. We better be living a life that God would approve of. And we need to take advantage of the good things in this world He's blessed us with. And we ought to enjoy it too. Nothing wrong with enjoying what this world has to offer in the correct context in which God has provided it. But it can't be our top priority. All we see in this life is temporal. And if that's all we see, we won't be successful. We're not seeing things the same way. No group of people have ever been able to see the same thing when there's been a lack of of dedication and hard work. God expects it. He's demanded it. He's taught it. And it is a worthy goal to desire heaven. It is a worthy goal to serve the Lord faithfully. It is a worthy goal to evangelize the areas in which we live no matter what Hollywood tells us to the contrary. They don't speak for me. And I know they don't speak for you. They're deluded. And they probably believe they do. However, seeing the same thing is aided when we have a personal involvement in helping others see the same thing. You remember what Nehemiah said? Nehemiah Recorded and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. That is such a wonderful passage. Christ admonished, John 4.35, Say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh the harvest. He said, behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already. To harvest the work is there. We just have to execute 
We have to expand and we have to exterminate some things that need to be exterminated. And we can do it. And when we do that, we will be successful no matter the result. If a congregation is doing what they're supposed to be doing, whatever number they are is the number they ought to be. If we're doing the work and we're seeing the same thing. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. See your way into understanding that we have to obey the gospel of Christ through faith, repentance, confession, baptism. If you've fallen away and you've become unfaithful, see your way back into the light through repentance of sin, confession, in whatever way necessary, whether publicly or privately. If you need to answer this invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.